This podcast is sponsored by FAT, F-A-T-T, a range of keto on-the-go snacks, including cookies, brownies, chocolate bites, bars, fat jacks, and muffins. Fat snacks are delicious, natural, and always free from sweeteners, fillers, and seed oils. Find fat snacks at www.livefat.com. That's L-I-V-E-F-A-T-T dot com. Use the code FABULOUSLY10, that's one zero, to give an extra 10% off one-time purchases. Not valid on subscribe and save. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto Podcast, and this is episode 43. And today we are interviewing Dr. Sarah Myhill. And Jackie and I were in the clubhouse, we were clubbing in our clubhouse, and we got talking to a um, participant, and she told us that she was managing or had managed her fibromyalgia in consultation with Dr. Sarah. And we took it upon ourselves to to reach out to Dr. Sarah and to come on and have um, and be interviewed today. So luckily for us, um, Dr. Sarah is based in the UK, has a functional medicine approach, a holistic functional medicine approach using the paleo ketogenic diet. So Jackie and I have, you know, reflected on this um, forthcoming interview that we were absolutely left particularly speechless because of um, Dr. Sarah's passion and her um, commitment to using the paleo ketogenic diet um, in her clinical practice. And her knowledge, her in-depth knowledge of so many different areas. It was fascinating. Yeah, I hope the listeners, um, you will enjoy this. But for um, for the listeners, Jackie, can you tell us a bit more about Dr. Sarah? Dr. Sarah Myhill qualified from the Middlesex Hospital Medical School in 1981. For the next 20 years, she worked as an NHS GP and later moved into independent medical practice with a special interest in chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. She practices ecological medicine, which diagnoses mechanisms of disease with obvious implications for management. Since 1986, she's been an active member of the British Society of Ecological Medicine and has a diploma in clinical nutrition. She's a published author and researcher on chronic fatigue syndrome and mitochondrial dysfunction. Her books include Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, It's Mitochondria, Not Hypochondria and Ecological Medicine, 
the antidote to big pharma and fast food. She's made many media appearances, including Newsnight, Dispatches, Women's Hour and The Esther Ranson Show. Sarah loves walking, riding, gardening and is very much into self-sufficiency. One of the joys in her life, along with her two daughters, is her Pattendale Terrier Nancy. Welcome, Dr. Sarah, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. We always ask, our first question is, where in the world are you? Oh, mid-Wales. So uh, in the middle of nowhere, I'm looking out over a lovely um, countryside view, so I'm very fortunate. Ah, lovely. So tell us how you got started on your paleo-keto journey and and who led you to that? Um, Well... (laughs) I qualified as a doctor in 1981, and I then did 20 years as an NHS general practitioner. And um, and in the last 20 years, I've been in the independent uh, medical sector. And the reason I got onto this path is because I realised that NHS medicine is woefully inadequate for healing people. Now, they get treated with drugs to suppress symptoms, which means more drugs, escalating pathology and the patients get sick uh, and i.e the doctors are not asking the question why you know why have i got migraine why have i got arthritis why have i got cancer they weren't looking at the underlying causes it's all symptom suppression with medication yeah and of course uh, you know we are products of our environment and the single biggest effect on our health is what we eat and our diet I came in from this actually from the point of view of allergy. What woke me up to all this was my oldest daughter, when I was breastfeeding her in the early 1980s, had the most awful colic. Something made me give up dairy products. And as a result of that, um, uh, her colic disappeared literally overnight. So did my chronic catarrh and snotty nose and asthma. So and that was nowhere to be found in the medical textbook. So as I I start off from an allergy perspective and Guess what? We all learn from our patients. My guess is that 95% of what I practice now, I've learned from my patients and from medical practice, not from what I learned at medical school. Mm. And so with the health of my patients, uh, we started looking at diet in more detail. And we and, you know, it was very clear to me during the 1980s that allergy was a big player. And um, um, uh, and, and dairy allergy, wheat allergy, gluten grains, yeast and so on. And then it became increasingly that that was not the only story. And if we fast forward to today, where um, I treat a whole range of conditions from chronic fatigue syndrome and ME to cancer and dementia, what I now know is that the starting point to treat absolutely all disease and pathology and indeed to prevent such is the paleo ketogenic diet. And when people say to me, well, what's the evidence base for that? It's an easy answer. It's about 100 million years of evolution. Mm -hmm. Human beings have evolved during all that time eating a paleo ketogenic diet. Now, that doesn't mean no carbohydrates in it ever, because the ability to deal with carbohydrates, the ability to eat them, evolved as a survival mechanism. what What happened when primitive man migrated away from Africa? He had to deal with the seasons. He had to deal with winter. And to deal with winter um, when there is little or no food, 
what you do is, first of all, you prepare a, a pantry, your own um, carbohydrate or your own food store in your, source in your body, which is called fat. And then in the winter, you go into hibernation. So you minimize energy expenditure and therefore you survive. So the question is, how did primitive man get fat in the autumn? And he got fat because carbohydrates are addictive. And in the autumn, we have a free, we have a windfall, we have a free harvest, we have fruit, we have nuts, we have seeds, we have vegetables. Well, it's, I mean, luckily, of course, it's not so much free because we have to ha work hard to generate that harvest. But, you know, for a primitive man, much of that would have been a free windfall, literally. And he started eating carbohydrates and we have a carbohydrate addiction gene. And once switched on, we can't stop switching. Uh, we can't stop eating carbohydrates. And guess what? We get fat. Now, in short, sharp doses, that is highly desirable for winter survival. But now we have an incredibly sophisticated food supply. Uh, we can eat carbohydrates all year round if we so wish. And we do because we can. We never switch off that carbohydrate addiction gene. And I now know without a shadow of doubt that carbohydrate addiction drives all Western pathology from obesity and diabetes to heart disease to cancer to dementia and to degenerative conditions. Mm. And therefore, that is why we have a paleo ketogenic diet. Paleo, which means avoiding the gluten grains um, and the dairy products uh, because they have problems in their own right for reasons of allergy, for reasons of growth promotion reasons of toxicity and then ketogenic because we have to squeeze out the carbohydrates because they are addictive and believe you me I'm as good an addict as any of you addiction seems to be a feature of, of modern humans um, and we're all aware of the obvious addictions you know to um, nicotine to alcohol to cannabis to opiates or whatever and what we haven't woken up to is the fact that carbohydrates especially sugars are highly addictive and once you start eating them, you can't stop. Yeah. And how do I know that? You, know, you give me a bar of, of you know, uh, of cheap chocolate, with, which is 30% cocoa solids. If I ate one square, the whole bar would go because I'm a sugar addict. How do I deal with that? I don't have any at all. I don't. I don't have the first square because I know I won't be able to stop. But with a ketogenic diet, you switch off that carbohydrate addiction. You eat according to your senses, to your taste, to your gut feelings for what you need, and we can talk about that. Um, you don't get fat. If you are, if you start off being overweight, it's easy to lose weight once you are keto adapted. And as I say, you reverse all those pathologies. You can reverse cancer, you can reverse dementia, you can certainly reverse heart disease. So, you know, it really is the starting point for all Western diseases treatment and prevention. So when did you find out about this? Well, it's, it's, it, there, I wouldn't, I would hate to say there was a particular eureka moment. It, it, it was a slow evolution um, um, because as it started off with allergy and then through the 1990s and the 2000s, then I started to appreciate the problems with carbohydrates. And that started off initially with sugars because sugars are so obviously addictive and a cause of problems. And in the 1990s and 2000s, I was particularly interested in what I, in the fermenting gut. And um, again, the fermenting gut is a very common problem of Westerners. And it arises because the upper gut, our upper gut should be a near sterile um, digesting gut to allow us to deal with um, fats and, and, and um, proteins. 
the lower bowel, the large bowel, the colon, should be full of bacteria, but friendly bacteria to digest fiber. And we can cope with a bit of carbohydrate, a bit of sugar, a little bit of starch in the upper gut. But if we overwhelm our ability to deal with those sugars and carbohydrates, the upper gut starts to ferment them instead. It starts to colonize with yeast and bacteria. And that causes a whole host of problems. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if the upper gut starts to ferment sugars, what you get where you get the products of fermentation, also known as the autobrewery syndrome. We start to ferment alcohol. Um, and you know, if you if you ask me to have a glass of a glass of wine for breakfast, you know, I wouldn't be able to function for the rest of the day because I'd be foggy-brained and fatigued. Uh, so, but it's not just alcohol; it's other toxins, you know, higher alcohols, propyl alcohol, butyl alcohols, um, gases like hydrogen sulfide, ammoniacal compounds, which literally poisonous. So that's the that's the first problem. Oh, delactate, and just to give you an example of how toxic that is. When we had an epidemic of BSE in this country, um, the vets were diagnosing BSE clinically, but only 80% of them turned out to have the prime proton. The other 20% had delactate acidosis. You know, it caused severe brain pathology in those animals, and it does the same in humans. But not just the products of, of those fermenting um, uh, carbohydrates, you have a buildup of the microbes themselves. Now, those microbes protect themselves by producing toxins. So we have uh, a tsunami of um, fungal mycotoxins, which poisonous, bacterial endotoxins, which poisonous. And again, at medical school, we are taught, yes, there are microbes in the gut and there they stay. Not true. We know these microbes get into the bloodstream. It's called bacterial translocation. Um, just to give an example, you know, if, if somebody brushed their teeth and then you did a blood test two minutes later, you would find mouth bacteria in the bloodstream. So what do those bacteria do there? Well, if these are friendly microbes from the lower bowel, which have been fermenting fiber for hundreds of millions of years, the immune system knows who they are. Fine. We know you're, you're there. You know, we know you're not going to do us any harm. We get excreted out in the urine and that's that. But if they are unfriendly microbes that the immune system is not familiar with, if those bacteria or those yeast get stuck in our joints or our muscles or our lungs or our gut lining, there we will get an inflammatory response and that drives pathology. Mm -hmm. And now I'm quite sure that many cases of arthritis, of rheumatic conditions, of fibromyalgia, of chronic urticaria, of intrinsic asthma, um, um, of polymyalgia rheumatica, temporal arteritis, autoimmunity, is driven by these abnormal fermenting microbes in the upper gut. Mm. So how do we treat the upper gut? Well, the first thing is that the fermenting upper gut. Don't feed it. Just cut out the sugars and the carbohydrates. And then the numbers of microbes will fall dramatically. Uh, the normal digestion will resume because stomach acid is there to sterilize the upper gut and keep it clean. That's why you take cider vinegar twice a day, because it helps that acid stomach. Normal pancreatic function is restored and normal gut function is restored. And with that, so many pathologies simply melt away. So, as I say, it was a slow awakening. It was a slow dawning, which started off with cutting out um, um, the dairy products and the gluten grains and then cutting out all the sugars and the addictive carb carbohydrates, and then reducing the rest of the carbohydrates so much 
that one is in ketosis. Um, and, uh, and a very useful test of that is I recommend all my patients get a ketone breath meter so that they can measure from day to day, from hour to hour, that they have done the diet sufficiently well, get into ketosis. And that has dramatic effects on energy levels, on blood sugar control, on cancer, heart disease, dementia, and so on. Do you have a specific breath meter that you recommend? No, they all work fine, but they are a very delicate tool. They are measuring um, ketones in parts per million, and they will cross-react with alcohol, for example. As I'm sure you've, I don't know if you had a breath, ketone breath meter, but if you have a couple of sips of wine and then you blow, it'll look as if you're in massive ketosis. But that isn't ketones you're measuring, that's alcohol you're measuring. So you have to use these ketone meters with respect in order to get an accurate reading. So as I say, if you have an upper fermenting gut and you are fermenting sugars to produce alcohol, you may well test positive, but that's a false result. You know, I also know if I have a sip of coffee and then blow, I will get a false negative result. So you, if, you, if you use them properly and you know that you're somewhere near ketosis, you know that you know, you're, you've done 90% of it and you just want to fine tune, then it's a very useful tool. But if you're using it disrespectfully when you're not observing the dart, um, then yes, you may well get inaccurate readings. Mm. Uh, just another example, one of my patients um, uh, used to wipe um, her ring with an alcohol you know, wipe in order to keep it clean. And guess what? That gave a false positive result. So I think the breath tests are very useful so long as they're used with, with respect. Yeah, we tend to do blood well, you can, you, you certainly can use blood, and that is the gold standard. You know, a blood reading is completely accurate, but A, it's painful, and guess what? I'm a wimp. And B, the, you know, sticks cost a pound each, so they're rather expensive. You know, I, I bought this, I don't know, a year ago, and I must have had hundreds of tests out of it, which cost me diddly squat. So it's painless and I'm mean. So, yes, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Blood tests are the gold standard, but for the practical reality, uh, people get on fine with the breath meters. Interesting. Yeah, I know what you mean about the. Uh, you have to treat it with respect. I bought a ketonics um, breath meter after I saw a presentation by the um, the chap, the inventor, and I got to say it. Yeah, I'm not a wimp. I can do blood tests. That's fine. I like the convenience of the of the number. But yeah, you, you're certainly right. You have to train yourself to to breathe and to you know to do it. So um, yeah. But uh, and, and and the other point is, you know, people worry about oh, sometimes it gives me a low reading, sometimes it gives me a high reading. It doesn't matter. Any reading will do. You know, I'm happy for people to be you know in uh, one part per million of ketones as, as ten parts per million of ketones. The point here being is that uh, if you are blowing, it, given the choice. The body will always burn carbohydrates first before fats. You know, carbohydrates are, you know, like your current bank account, your fat is your deposit bank account. That's your security for the winter. So the body will always burn carbohydrates first, given the choice. So if you're blowing any ketones at all, it means you're starting to dip into your fat supplies. You're starting to, to, uh, from, um, to use fat in your gut as a fuel, or you're starting to use ketones which are produced by the fermentation of fiber in the large bowel because of course uh, the ketogenic diet is um, a diet which is rich in fat and fiber and we get ketones from the fermentation of fiber in the large bowel 
So uh, a high fiber diet is an essential part of the uh, paleo ketogenic diet. So the point is, the point is, if there are any ketones there, you're primarily running on fat and fiber, and that's what gets the thumbs up. And then you can start to fine tune a little bit. And many of my patients find they can get away with some carbohydrates and, and enjoy the odd carbohydrate meal. And if they slip out of ketosis, you know, um, for a few hours, it doesn't matter. It means, you know, you haven't saturated your glycogen stores in the liver. Um, you've not got insulin, you know, uh, uh, very high in order to keep blood sugars down. You know, you're, it's, you know, you're miles away from metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So, again, it's a little, the, the ketone breath meter allows us to take a few more risks during the day and enjoy some of those foods that we all enjoy. And guess what? You know, primitive man wasn't in ketosis 24-7. You know, in the autumn, he was in, 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 in sugar mode. He was in carbohydrate mode. He was getting fat in preparation for the winter. Mm. So I find that the breath meter allows people to take a few more liberties with their diet, uh, but get all the benefits of a ketogenic diet despite. So does that mean that you would recommend carb cycling? Is that is that part of it? I mean, you said about dipping your toe in, but you know, this is I'm, I'm not that well organized with my diets. You know, um, you know, did primitive man say, well, we'll carb cycle today and not tomorrow? I don't think so. Um, and let's face it, it takes years. No, it takes decades of running on carbs to produce pathology, to produce somebody who is overweight or has diabetes or heart disease or whatever. So, you know, if, 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 you know if, you, if you fall out of ketosis for a day because you're having a party, and guess what? I'm no paragon of virtue. You know, what do I do if I go out and have a party? I want to have a few drinks with my friends, and I want to eat the wrong things, and I can get away with it. And then the next day I get on, back on the wagon again. But I don't look in my diary and say, oh, oh time for a carb cycling, you know. I'm just not that organized about my diet. Um, I know I can take these liberties, and I do, uh, and so do my patients. Obviously, if those liberties mean that you start to get symptoms and problems, then you don't do it. But, you know, a few carbs are fine. I find that's what makes it sustainable. The fact that you can have an odd day or an odd meal where you don't stick to it. Of course you can. Of course you can. We're human beings, you know. Uh, you know, I, you know I get, we all get so much pleasure from our food. And we want to eat the best food we, you know, we possibly can and, and get the best of both worlds and stay well. So, so now I'm, I say I'm no paragon of virtue. My patients are usually very relieved to hear that. <laughs> so what then is the sort of, I suppose, a little bit of, I'm looking for a technical sort of answer to the relationship of the being paleo-keto and how that then helps somebody like me with a chronic pain condition. So I understand, you know, we, we, you mentioned about this inflammation. So eating paleo-keto helps me with my chronic pain by what? Well, you have to ask the question, why do you have chronic pain? And, and this is where some doctors are very naughty. They use words like chronic pain syndrome as if it's a diagnosis and it's not. It doesn't tell us why you've got the chronic pain. But I now know that chronic pain means you are inflamed. So we have to ask the question, why are you inflamed? And you can be inflamed for reasons of allergy, autoimmunity or chronic infection. So we then have to want to go back to square one, ask the question, well, how did it all begin? You know, how did that chronic pain syndrome start? And if it was gradual you know, over some years, then it's very likely that uh, this is something to do with allergy to microbes from the upper fermenting gut. And there's a two-pronged approach to that. 
first of all, starve the little wretches out with the ketogenic diet. So, um, and secondly, kill them with vitamin C. And vitamin C is a fabulous, one of my favorite multitasking tools because it does so many good jobs. And vitamin C to bowel tolerance is a great treatment for the upper fermenting gut. So that would be the starting point. But the trouble with the immune system is once it's been educated, once it's learned to react um, to those microbes or which might be yeast or bacteria or whatever, it's difficult to unlearn that. I mean, the immune system is intelligent. It's all about educating it. You know, let me give you an example of that. If you get chicken pox as a child, you know, the immune system learns, oh, that's chicken pox virus. You know, we won't let that happen again. And you never get chicken pox again in your life because you have learned immunity. You have learned to react to that microbe. You might get shingles later on in life, but that's when somebody's immunosuppressed. That's when the immune system has gone down for whatever reason. And if ever I see somebody with shingles, I always ask myself the question, why is their immune system down? Is there an underlying cancer, tumor, uh, um, a malabsorption, um, di nutritional deficiency, energy deficiency, or whatever? So the immune system is intelligent and it learns. And if it has learned to react to a microbe from the fermenting gut, it then has to unlearn that. We then have to reprogram the immune system. And, and that's the tricky bit. And there are lots of techniques we have to doing that. I used to use, um, I start off using a technique called neutralization. I then evolved onto enzyme potentiated desensitization. And now I knew, use a technique called microimmunotherapy. Um, and they all have their advocates. And, and for some people, it works brilliantly well. And for some people, it doesn't. And we have to look at other things. But for example, there are some very useful nutritional interventions you can use, which just damp down immunity, uh, for example, or damp down the immune system, damp down inflammation. For example, vitamin D. Vitamin D is the most important anti-inflammatory um, in the body, and we get it from sunshine. And you know, guess what? We're all sunshine deficient. Why? Because we, we evolved to live on the equator. And when we moved north, we got less sunshine. Uh, and symptomatic of that is the fact that if you have a dark skin, that protects you from all that sunshine on the equator. But people with dark skins, as they move north, they died of vitamin D deficiency. And so we evolved pale skins. And the further away from the equator you go, the pale your skin becomes. And the pale your skin is, the more efficiently you can make vitamin D. So, uh, but even now we don't get enough. I mean, I'm lucky I'm sitting in my lovely conservatory surrounded by light, but ultraviolet light can't penetrate glass. I'm not getting any vitamin D sitting in this sunlight. I've got to be outside. But guess what? I'm a wimp. It's too cold out there. You know, you won't find me out there in my thong today. So guess what? I take a vitamin D supplement. And um, I reckon that we should all be taking about five to 10,000 IU of vitamin D daily for optimal health. Now, the government's recommended is a poultry 400 IU. Yeah, now, I, I, I'm not often using rude words, but that really is pissing into the wind. You've got to have a decent dose. And um, not only is that highly protected against all inflammatory conditions, and guess what? Most Western pathologies are driven by inflammation. It's highly protected against infection, especially COVID-19. And I'm sure you guys have seen endless studies showing that um, uh, you know, if you've got good levels of vitamin D, you will survive COVID perfectly well. And this, of course, explains why the Black and Asian uh, doctors and, and people are dying from COVID-19 because they have very low levels of vitamin D because they have dark skins and they don't make it efficiently from sunshine. Mm. So vitamin D, highly important. Yeah. So, 
So your chronic pain, Louise, the first way I would start with treating that is paleoketogenic diet, um, vitamin C to bowel tolerance to reduce that um, uh, a load of fermenters in the upper gut, and then start using anti-inflammatory tools um, to deal with the inflammation. One of the books I've written is this one here called Ecological Medicine, uh, which goes through the whole of medicine um, from symptoms, what those symptoms mean, the mechanisms by which you arrive at those symptoms, and then what I call the tools of the trade to deal with that clinical picture. And there are some tools of the trade which are common to everything. Everybody has to do the paleoketogenic diet, for example, and then be disciplined about sleep, use supplements, exercise, and that sort of stuff. And then we have what I call the bolt-on extra tools, the tools that we would use for dealing with inflammation, like vitamin D, like vitamin B12, um, um, uh, you know, very, uh, very, very important, like microimmunotherapy. And then we have the tools I'd use for using for improving energy delivery mechanisms, which might be mitochondrial supplements, thyroid and adrenal stuff. And then we'd have the tools for dealing with chronic infection. So I'm trying to give people, as I call it, the rules of the game and the tools of the trade so they can heal themselves. And this is so important because there aren't enough people like you and me around to guide people through um, this path. People mm -hmm. get deflected by conventional medicine that says, no, just take some drugs and you'll be all right. Fine in the short term, disaster in the long term. A friend of mine, her, her daughter's boyfriend, they, but they both had COVID. And since then, he's had chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome. Is is that common with COVID sufferers? Very common, very common. Um, funny if I did a, a seminar last night, and, and it's probably about ten percent of pe people who get COVID end up with long COVID. And you know, essentially, um, that is ME. Let me just explain the difference between the two. Chronic fatigue syndrome is the, the both of these chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. They're not diagnoses; they are clinical pictures. Chronic fatigue is the clinical picture we see when energy delivery mechanisms are poor. ME is the clinical picture we see when energy delivery mechanisms are poor and we have chronic inflammation. And that chronic inflammation gets switched on often by viruses. Um, so um, those patients um, almost certainly have a chronic viral presence, which is either eliciting an immune reaction because it's there as an infection or it's switching on autoimmunity. And um, there is suggestion that many of the antibodies against um, COVID cross-react with self to drive inflammation at distal sites, which might be in the brain and muscles and the joints or whatever. That mechanism is called molecular mimicry. So the treatment is the same. We have to look at energy delivery mechanisms. And then we have to look at you know, mechanisms to, to deal with that inflammation, whether that's an infectious inflammation, an allergic inflammation, or an autoimmune inflammation. Hmm. Interesting thing is, when is there? You, s you had suggested that uh, a paleoketogenic diet, you know, is is it's going to fix fix the the eels. Is there a particular patient profile where it doesn't actually work? Well, obviously, there's going to be. I suppose. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people struggle to get into the paleoketogenic diet. I mean, my view is that the evolution imperative to do it is so powerful that it really is non-negotiable. Okay. 
Now, I know people struggle to do the paleoketogenic diet, and they struggle for three common reasons. And I call these reasons D, D, D reactions. Diet, die-off, and detox reactions. So let's just look at the diet reactions now. As everybody is probably listening to this, is very aware you can get keto flu. It takes some time for the body to adjust to um, running on fats and fiber rather than running on sugars and starches. And that's just a bit of metabolic inertia in the system, if you like. It, the body just has to learn to um, switch to fat burning. If you struggle to get into keto, to um, uh, adapt like that. So if despite doing the keto diet for a couple of weeks, you still feel hypoglycemic, then that is called ketogenic hypoglycemia. And it's a very good clue that there's a thyroid problem here. Now, the point here is that to be able to move into fat burning, you have to have um, good thyroid function. It's thyroid hormones which primarily allow us to burn fat. If you don't have the thyroid hormones to go around, the body will fat burn, but it does it with adrenaline instead. Now, adrenaline makes us feel awful. You know, it's, it's the fight or flight hormone. It makes us feel stressed, anxious, and so on. You know, hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. Low blood sugar symptoms are not caused by low blood sugar. They're caused by the adrenaline reaction to low blood sugar. So, for example, sometimes my patients can come and see me and they're in ketosis because they have to be. Uh, I send routine bloods off and I will get a phone call from the lab saying, oh, your patient's blood sugar is dangerously low. They've got a blood sugar of one or two. You know, ring them up and tell them to have some sugar. I said, no, it's fine. You know, they're in ketosis. Um, they're running perfectly happy on ketones. The body doesn't need to run a high blood sugar. It can function fine on a low blood sugar. So, um, so the point here is that the symptoms of low blood sugar are adrenaline symptoms. Now, if you move into ketosis and you're fat burning, and if you haven't got the thyroid hormones of fat burn, you will use adrenaline instead. And it feels like you're hypoglycemic. It feels awful. We call it ketogenic hypoglycemia. In fact, that term was coined in the 1960s um, by the um, uh, pediatricians because in the 1960s and before, the treatment for children with epilepsy was a ketogenic diet. They didn't have the drugs. They didn't know any other way to treat it. But ketogenic diet responded beautifully. Most of those children adapted the diet fine and off they went. Some of them didn't. You know, they complained of ketogenic hypoglycemia. And what was the answer to that? Well, they seemed to grow out of it was the answer. And of course, when you're a child, you know, everything is, is plastic, is growing, is their thyroids presumably geared up to uh, requirements, started to use the thyroid hormones and they were okay. But, you know, when you turn into an old crone like me um, uh, and the menopause often uncovers a thyroid problem, um, uh, then uh, you, the body can't adapt anymore and you do need to take a thyroid supplement um, now, GPs are very unsympathetic to um, this treatment. Uh, thyroid conditions are one of the worst treated conditions uh, in Western medicine. And that is because the doctors will only diagnose a thyroid problem on the basis of blood tests. Blood tests, yes, they're important. They, as I call it, give you the coarse tuning. But then you have to look at the clinical symptoms for, as I call it, the fine tuning. And ketogenic hypoglycemia is one such. Another reason why you can get diet reactions when you do the ketogenic diet is because I do not just the ketogenic diet, I do a paleo ketogenic diet. I cut out the grains and the dairy. And interestingly, 
those foods are, yes, they're allergens, but you often get addicted to the food to which you're allergic. And as with any addiction, when you stop it, you get withdrawal symptoms. So expect that too. So those are the two common diet reactions which I see. And then we get what I call the detox reactions, because as soon as you move into um, uh, ketosis, you start to mobilize fats. We dump toxins in our fat. And if you start to mobilize fats, then you get an acute poisoning. And to give an example of this, um, I do fat biopsies to measure the toxic load in people, to look at their levels of organophosphate, organochlorine, polybrominated biphenols, benzene compounds, toluene compounds, and so on. I have never had a normal result. We all carry a toxic load because we live in a toxic world. The results of those fat biopsies come back in milligrams per, per kilogram. Whereas if I do a blood test, the result comes back in micrograms, i.e. those toxins are present in fat at a thousand times higher than those present in the bloodstream. So when you diet or when you go into a ketogenic diet and you mobilize fat, you mobilize toxins and you give yourself an acute poisoning. So be mindful, that's a possibility. And the third uh, sort of reaction we get are die-off reactions. Again, as soon as you cut out the sugars and the carbohydrates, you starve those fermenting microbes. You also starve any microbes that may be causing a systemic reaction. And those microbes start to, to die. They, they, they literally die and break up. And you then get allergic reactions to those dead proteins, those bits of bacterial protein, cell membrane, you know, uh, cell organelles that are swilling around the body. And that was called, that's called a Herxheimer reaction. It was first described in the 1920s when they were using various things to try to kill the syphilis bacteria, uh, treponema. So, um, the syphilis spirochete. So those are the three sort of reactions. And, you know, they can be very persistent. Now, I have seen many people who've been uh, poisoned by organophosphates in the Gulf War syndrome, you know, farmers with sheep dip flu, you know, farmen who've been fighting fires and have 9-11 syndrome, they've been poisoned by products of combustion. Uh, and those get dumped in the fat and they may take weeks before they you know, detox fully and that can cause problems as well. So the PK diet is very fraught, especially in the early stages. Um, and some people, you know, they have to go into it gently because, of course, we're dealing with people who are already sick and we can't afford to make them too much sicker because they're already struggling with their illness. And that is probably the most difficult part of management. But intellectually, they've got to end up on a PK diet. That is actually the, the end point. For some people, that's the starting point. For some people, the starting point is fasting. For some people, the starting point is a GAPS diet where they just eat you know, meat and meat broth and fish for, um, for, for a fortnight. And if for some people um, who are multiply allergic, they have to cut out all sorts of other foods. But the, the point here is the paleo-ketogenic diet is not really the starting point. It's actually the end point. This is where we should all end up. And you know, our journey to get there, for some people, it's very difficult. And for some people, it's, 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 it's a, a smoother path. But it's never... A completely easy ride and that's why so many people give up with it they don't just push through with it which really addresses the question where people actually sort of say about you know the sustainability of the diet but you know as you said once they push through the the, the first couple of weeks of the keto flu 
then obviously they get into those additional benefits. And many people start, you know, come for the weight loss, but stay for the additional health benefits. Yeah. And I have just quickly now, I have to say now that the paleo ketogenic diet has never been easier to do than it is nowadays. Because, you know, when I first got interested in darts in, in the early 1980s, there were no good dairy substitutes. They were awful. And giving out dairy products was, for me, was a major bereavement. But the alternatives we now have available are fantastic. The vegan cheeses, the vegan butters, um, the coconut milks are superb. And, you know, so you, I no longer feel deprived from dairy products. You get some glorious, you know, coconut creams, for example. And the second thing is bread. You know, I knew early on that bread was going to be a major loss for people. And I got up early every morning for about six months uh, until I developed a good paleo ketogenic bread. And um, I ended up producing a cookbook, which is called the PK Cookbook. And in there is a great uh, recipe for bread. And they're only and uh, all the recipes in there are designed for people who don't have the time, the energy or the inclination. I'm no great cook. I'm a busy person. And um, and, uh, and uh, I, okay, I do have the energy, but it's got to be short and sharp. So the paleo bread recipe, which is in there, is based on three ingredients, um, uh, linseed flour, water and salt. That's all you need. Now, some people tell me it tastes a bit fishy and therefore uh, choose to put in a handful of caraway seeds or a handful of fennel seeds or a handful of cumin to give it that flavour. But I can make an excellent I make buns these days because they cook reliably well. I can make 12 buns. It takes me five minutes to mix up the dough. And then I leave it for 10 minutes to settle. And then another two minutes to make the buns. And then it's in the oven and job is done. So often last thing at night, I make up the dough, leave it overnight, put it in the oven first thing in the morning. And it's there for my breakfast and the rest of the day and the next day. So it really is very easy. I have looked around for a commercial person to make it and I can't find anybody who will do it for me but it's a, a dead easy recipe. And I always say to my patients, and if necessary, I give them a cooking demonstration and there is a cooking demonstration of me somewhere on YouTube making it. You really can get the bread established. It's high in fiber. It's only 2% carbohydrate. And with your vegan cheese, you've got a cheese sandwich. You can make pizza. You, know, you can make all the foods that we've come to love. So the focus there, you were sort of mentioning about fibre as well. And I remember seeing a, a presentation by Zoe Hardcombe and she was obviously saying that there's no, well, her, her thesis was really that there's no requirement for fibre. But you're focusing quite a lot on the paleo-ketogenic diet being higher in fat as well as in fibre. Can you explain why we okay. need fibre? Uh, well, um, uh, I, I refer to the work of great surgeons like Dennis Burkett, um, uh, who worked out in Africa in the 1950s and the 1960s. And there he noticed that the indigenous Africans living there um, uh, did not have Western pathologies. You know, they did not have um, piles, diverticular disease, colon cancer, stomach cancer, heart disease and so on. And he ascribed that to their high fiber diet. Um, um, and. You know, again, the, the paleo, the paleo kitchen that would have been a high fiber diet. Primitive man would have been scurrying around, you know, especially in the autumn, eating those high fiber foods. Yes, we can probably manage um, a low fiber diet for some time, but it's not good for the health of our lower bowel. Our lower bowel, the lining of the bowel is fueled by short chain fatty acids, and they are produced by the fermentation of fiber. So, for example, um, um, interesting work done by a 
doctor called Dr. Stremel showed that ulcerative colitis um, results from a lack of the right um, fat in the large bowel, uh, and, uh, and that comes from an abnormal bowel fermentation. And ulcerative colitis can be cured by fecal bacteria therapy, for example, get the right microbes in there, feed them with prebiotics that we get from you know, vegetables, nuts, seeds, um, uh, uh, and so on, uh, and you have a healthy, large gut. Um, so I think fiber is an important part of. Um, I chat away with a lovely gynecologist and obstetrician called Martin Quayle, who um, uh, points out that many uh, conditions of, of women, gynecological conditions like prolapse, like endometriosis, uh, like chronic pelvic pain, can be explained by um, straining at stool. So, you know, we don't sit correctly to uh, pass a stool. We should be squatting, and he developed a squatty potty. And then we should never strain at stool, because when you strain at stool, essentially you prolapse the uterus, you know, down into the pelvis, which is not a good idea. Uh, you crush the, 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 the contents of the uterus, and thereby uh, there's the potential for endometriosis, for uterine contents to spill out through um, uh, the fallopian tubes. And endometriosis is a nasty, chronic, painful condition. So, and guess what? You don't see endometriosis in uh, traditional Af in Africans eating a traditional Af African diet because they squat, they pass their stool effortlessly. And on the Bristol stool chart, um, we should be passing a number four. So as I say to my patients, your number twos should be number fours. And if you're not sure what the Bristol stool chart looks like, you can get the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the pictures of the birthday cakes as Bristol stool charts as well. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Which, um, living in Bangkok, Thailand, and I have the pleasure of, uh, you know, if I'm out, particularly if I'm going into the country regions, then, yes, I do at the rest stops, um, yeah, the old squat toilets. And um, my first encounter with a squat toilet was in 1996 when I was travelling in Malaysia. And I came across, obviously, it's a Muslim country, so squat toilet with the bucket and the water. And it's like, hmm, right. Um, and, you know, you've got the sort of the, the porcelain where the foot footrests are. It's like, I remember camping as a kid, you know, in Australia, in the outback. I'm, I'm good with this. So never travel anywhere without tissues, Louise. So, um, yeah. But the only problem is... Um, I'm a little bit older, the joints are a bit creakier, I just can't get down. I can get, well, maybe I can get down, but I can't get back up. <laughs> so, um, and you hear the sort of clanging in the, in the cubicles as I'm trying to, trying to get myself back up from the, um, the old squat positions there. But it's, it's an interesting conundrum because I think, you know, so much of the messaging that we've had is, you know, we need to have our fibre, but we have this sort of mixed messaging from obviously, you know, those in the low-carb keto community. You don't need this. You do need this. You don't need that. So you have many of these, these mixed messagings. Well, if there is a difficult question like that, always go back to evolutionary biology. What happens in nature? You know, does my puppy dog, you know, go and sit on a toilet to have a crap? No, of course she doesn't. She squats in the, in, 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 in the garden. Uh, what did primitive man do? You know, wherever he found himself, he squatted. Uh, that's what primitive man's been doing for, you know, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. And that's what we should be doing too. Yeah, I remember seeing the squatty, the squatty potty, sort of the ads for that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense and, and you do feel um, a lot better when certainly you can get a bit of, bit of purchase on your purchase. 
So talk me through the um, your position on fasting. I mean, you mentioned just before people getting into, obviously at the start of their journey, fasting is okay. Do you recommend um, like regular sort of cyclical fasting? Because, you know, paleo man might have actually had long periods of food without. Yeah, so fasting is okay. Correct. Correct. You know, that again, uh, yes, we should be fasting. Why? You know, did paleo man get three meals a day, you know, um, 365 days a year? Of course he didn't. And fasting brings upon enormous benefits. And I think, um, I mean, well, one of the major benefits of fasting is something called autophagy, self-eating. Now, let me explain this a little bit. Every day we have a requirement for, for energy, for fuel and for protein. Now, protein cannot be stored in the body. There's no, I mean, fat we can store, uh, sugar we can store as glycogen, or fat, fat we can store as fat. We have great stores for those fuels, but we don't have a store for protein. So the body cheats a little bit. Now, when tissues, you know, get a bit old and get a bit ancient, and when cells get a bit uh, senescent, it hangs on to them. It's a sort of temporary protein store, so that when the protein is not there for whatever reason, maybe fasting or, or it's just not present, the body can turn to itself. It can start to autophage. It can start to self-eat and it eats up those old senescent cells. It eats up those rather aging immune cells, those aging, you know, turned over muscle cells, those, you know, aging turned over connective tissue cells or whatever. And that brings about many benefits. Um, and of course, if you've got cancer cells swinging around, it'll start eating those up too. So, you know, fasting is a, is a very good treatment for cancer. As it happens, I have one patient who has done fantastically well recently. She had a very nasty myeloma. She was on her second lot of chemotherapy when she came to me. And I said to her, well, you've got to fast during your chemotherapy. Um, uh, you've got to take vitamin C to bowel tolerance during your chemotherapy. Um, you know, it really was a last gasp treatment for her. Her cancer markers, you know, um, were over a thousand. And she felt incredibly well doing this regime. Um, she'd had suffered no side effects from the chemotherapy and her cancer markers are now um, below 30, which is a miraculous response. And the reason for that is as the chemotherapy was killing off her cancer cells, the fasting autophagy was gobbling them up and getting rid of them. So autophagy you know, is, is, is a very useful survival tool. It extends life, it stimulates um, uh, stem cells, uh, it stimulates rejuvenation of our tissues. So that's, you know, one uh, good reason to fast. If anybody has any hint of metabolic syndrome, i.e. they've got too much sugar lurking around, the glycogen sponges of their liver and their muscles are saturated, it empties those. And it's also a very useful starting point for weight loss. So if I have somebody who comes to me who wants to lose weight, then what the one thing you must not do is cut down calories. Because if you cut down your calories, then the body thinks, oh, there's a famine. We better stop burning them. And so you become fatigued. You become physically fatigued. You become foggy brained You become depressed because you haven't got the energy to spend and life is no fun. So the last thing you do is you cut down on calories. So what you first thing you, you go to is you get into ketosis. Because the point, the joy of getting ketosis is you don't get hungry anymore. You don't run out of fuel because you've got lots of fat to burn. The body can easily switch into burning its own body fat. And you eat your normal amount of calories for five days a week. And then you have two days a week where you either fast or you massively reduce your calorie, maybe just go to 500 calories a day. 
Now, the point is, there's a certain inertia in the body about um, burning calories. It takes several days before the body shuts down calorie uh, burning um, uh, commensurate with your diet. So for those two days, you will continue to burn calories at your normal rate. And that means the brain stays sharp, the body remains energized, you don't get depressed. In fact, it's rather nice because you don't have to prepare a meal, you don't have to waste time sitting down easy, you don't have to wash up and tidy up. You know, it's jolly good. You can get a jolly lot done during a fasting day. And guess what? I do. Um, and then you go back to your normal um, uh, calorie consumption. So you reduce your total calorie consumption by two sevenths of your normal, because two days you're fasting and seven days uh, and five days you're not. You continue to burn at your normal rate, and you are guaranteed to lose weight effortlessly, without any trouble, <coughs> um, and uh, without any symptoms. So that is it. That is the way for, for weight loss. What about extended fasting? Well, um, you know, I'm greedy and I love my food. Um, thankfully, I'm about the right weight, so I don't need to lose any weight. Um, um, and, you know, OK, you might choose to do that if you had a massive weight problem. But I just don't see the benefit of it, because I mean, what primitive man would have done is um, um, he would have uh, run out of food, uh, starved, fasted. You know, taking a day or two or three days to catch his next prey, and then he'd be back eating again. Having said that, Jackie, there's a wonderful um, oncologist in Canada called Thomas Seafraid, and he reckons that if we all fasted for one week in every year, you could substantially reduce the cancer rate worldwide. And the reason for that is you would have seven days of autophagy. Now, any cancer cells that were lurking, because the fact of the matter is we're producing cancer cells all the time. I mean, because of, you know, um, uh, just radiation alone, we produce about 10,000 DNA mutations every second. And that has to be healed and repaired by DNA um, 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 uh, repair. Uh, but some of those DNA mutations will result in cancer cells. So we're all going to have a few cancer cells swilling around the body all the time. And if the immune system's in tip-top shape, it'll recognize it, say, oh, that's abnormal, that's not self, we'll gobble it up and get rid of it before it causes problems. So we've all got cancer cells circulating all the time. And autophagy will accelerate, greatly accelerate, that cleaning up mechanism, which, as I say, may well be a part of short-term protein storage because the body does need you know, a daily dose of protein um, to function normally. So a paleo ketogenic diet is is nose to tail as well. Is that my understanding as well? So you're eating. I don't, what do you mean by nose to tail? Uh, organ meat, liver, kidney, heart. Eating organ meat. Of course, of course, delicious. Oh, I see what you mean. The parts of the animal, absolutely. And in fact, those organ meats are far more nutritious than the muscle meats. And you know, primitive tribes, you know, when they had hunted. Um, uh, they would split up the beast and, you know, the, the head's tribe would get the heart and the second head's man would get the liver and the kidneys and, and the women would get that horrible muscle meat, you know, those awful steaks that, you know, uh, are so, so such, such poor nutritional value. So what I'd be interested, if you're happy to cover, is um, why you moved from being a GP to go independently and some of the po politics that were around that. Well, um uh, first of all, you know, conventional NHS medicine is not looking at causation. It's not looking at mechanisms. And that's what I was interested in. 
Secondly, when I did start practicing um, that sort of medicine, uh, my prescribing budget fell markedly because I stopped using prescription drugs. And when that was spotted by the powers that be, they said, oh, she must be a bad doctor. She's not prescribing enough drugs. So I got my wrist slaps, you know, for having such a low prescribing budget. But I, you know, some, I mean, when, when people come to you in general practice, um, they've got two hats on. Yes, there are some people who, yes, um, they want to know why, they want to do the diets, and they do. And there's some who say, nah, just give me the drugs. You know, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, just give me the painkillers and then I'll go off my hip surgery, you know, when it, when it comes. So I, I don't say I ran out of patients, but, you know, um, there's only so many people you can deal with in, in, in a general practice. And I started, you know, my patients came to me, oh, my mum wants to see you. Oh, my dad wants to see you. Oh, my cousin wants to see you. And eventually I, I evolved an independent practice. It took 20 years to happen. Um, and what it means is I can now live in a very beautiful part of Wales. People don't mind traveling to see me. I do a lot by Zoom, of course, by telephone. So I can be a very effective doctor and live in a glorious part of the country and have my own um, uh, small holding because, you know, I love to be self-sufficient. So I have my own garden with I grow all my own vegetables and fruits. I have pigs, I have chickens, I have ducks. So um, I, I import a few things like coffee <laughs> and uh, coconut milk. Um, and vegan cheeses, but uh, olive oil and things like that. But largely, um, I can feed myself and my and my tribe because I live in a tribe with friends. Talk to us about the influence of um, big pharma and what you call defenders of the faith. I guess in the GPs who are standing for what they were taught. What you have to remember nowadays is that medical education is driven by the drug companies, by Big Pharma, because that's where the money is. If you want to be promoted in the medical world, you have to do some sort of study. You don't get promoted because you're a good doctor and highly effective and the patients love you. You get promoted because you do some sort of bit of research or study. Where does the money come from that? The drug companies. And doctors are now being, well, you could call it education. I call it brainwashing. Um, They are now trained to, that's the symptom, that's the drug, bingo. So, you know, blood pressure gets treated with blood pressure drugs. Depression gets treated with PP, um, with um, SSRIs. Indigestion gets treated with PPIs. You know, high um, cholesterol gets treated with statins. There's no thinking there. That's not interesting. That's not intellectually stimulating. That's not satisfying to patients. You know, who would want to practice that sort of medicine? I mean, you could have a, a computer program that could dish that out. So it's medicine driven by simple algorithms. But it makes loads of money and it makes loads of money for big pharma who then spend it on educating the doctors and believe you me many many doctors are in the pay of um, drug companies and um, I'm sorry my phone's going off many are in the pay of drug companies and that's why the doctors prescribe and that's why the doctors promote you know they have become puppets of instead of truly independent thinking doctors which is you know what they should be Hmm. How do we how do we change those circumstances and get doctors to be more involved? I think it's I think this has got to be a grassroots revolution. I mean, believe you me, I'm deeply unpopular with the medical profession. Um, they don't like me. Um, I'm the most investigated doctor in the history of the General Medical Council. No complaints with doc from from patients. No patients ever complained about my practice to the GMC. All the complaints come from um, other doctors, the GMC itself, other institutions, 
uh, and many from internet trolls who don't like the opinions on my website. Uh, so I'm now on investigation number 43, and the present score is um, My Hill 38, GMC nil, with um, you know five outstanding. <laughs> well done. Tell us a little bit about what your daily food intake looks like. Um, okay, well, I generally just eat two meals a day. So um, I get up first, go and throw all the animals out. And then breakfast is usually two boiled eggs with my paleo bread and vegan butter um, and a cup of coffee. And I don't eat anything through the day. And then evening meal is a good one. So I have a starter, which would be a large salad from the garden, maybe paleo bread with vegan um, cheese. Main course is meat. And okay, I'm very lucky. I have my own pigs. So it's, it's often pork or I do swapses for lamb or other meats. And then whatever vegetables are in the garden at the moment, it's Jerusalem artichokes, it's leeks, it's purple sprouting, some early spring onions that are coming through and some leftover squash. And then supper will be uh, a big button. Pudding will be uh, berries from the deep freeze, over which I pour coconut milk, stir it in, leaves a few minutes, and that gives you a sort of coarse ice cream, which is divine. And then maybe a couple of squares of dark chocolate afterwards. Great. I'm still struggling with the whole no dairy. And the reason is, I mean, cheese is life. I mean, you're talking up coconut and vegan cheese and all that sort of stuff. So I've, um, when I was living and working in the UK, and that's how Jackie and I met, and I did have this one month of no dairy. And I, I understand about the withdrawals and I understand about the caseomorphins and why I was feeling so terrible. But interestingly, I didn't notice any real... Um, or not benefits, you know, there was no change really to my weight um, other than obviously the two weeks of the crappy mood as I was going through this withdrawal period. But, yeah, later on I didn't really notice any effects, but reintroducing it I noticed that I actually ate less. So um, less, yeah, I, I had less um, yeah, I need for it. So other than I have cream in my coffee, and um, well, at that time, um, living in the UK, I just absolutely loved clotted cream, you know, the double thick cream, the cheeses, the you're, yogurts. You're, you, you are typical dairy addict. And that means almost certainly you have a problem with it. Now, look at dairy products from an evolutionary perspective. What are they meant for? They're meant for young mammals. If young mammals don't grow very quickly, they get eaten by saber-toothed tigers. And all dairy products are growth-promoting. And that makes them a risk factor for cancer. The book you need to read called Your Life in Your Hands by Professor Jane Plant, who herself had a breast cancer that was about the size of her fist. And she had all the surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and was told she'd got a few weeks to live. Cut out dairy products, and she went on to survive many more years. Uh, and she got that idea from the Chinese. You know, in China, they don't have any dairy products, and they have virtually no breast cancer. Um, so, you know, breast cancer is, is classically driven by um, the growth promoting effects of dairy products. Uh, a paper by a very dear friend of mine called David Freed called The Cow and the Coronary uh, looked at the incidence of arterial disease um, throughout uh, Europe, country by country, con dairy consumption by dairy consumption. And the more dairy you have, the greater the risk of arterial disease and vice versa. And then he looked at the various products. The most dangerous drink you can have is skimmed milk. The safest thing you can eat is butter. 
And it's the protein that's the problem. The protein in dairy products gives you sticky blood. Another major problem. Third, osteoporosis. The, the proportion of, of calcium to magnesium in dairy products is 10 parts calcium, one part magnesium. Both are absorbed by a similar mechanism. And all that calcium blocks your magnesium absorption and you get osteoporosis. So the more dairy you have, the greater your risk of osteoporosis. So those are three jolly good reasons not to have dairy as adults. Okay. And that's, and that's allergy aside. Anybody with chronic pain syndrome, you've got to get rid of the dairy. It's the number one allergen. <laughs> just, just, okay. We know this, we, Louise. We do, we, know we, we do. shouldn't see and it, it? I, I think the degree of emotion that I'm evoking right now, you can hear the pain in my voice. And as you said, my name is Louise and I'm a dairy addict um, or dairy-dependent person. Um, so, uh, yeah. But it, it has been interesting here since my time living in, in Thailand because dairy isn't really a thing here. And um, I have obviously struggled, like we have struggled with, um, you know, because the cheese is imported well, from Australia uh, or, or the EU. So I ended up making my own fresh cheese. So, um, yeah, in lockdown. So that was my, my lockdown contribution and um, making, making cheeses and yogurts and things. But um, you're right. It is something that in eliminating and obviously understanding about chronic pain and the, the sort of, you know, the basis for that is inflammation and thinking about what are those inflammatory things and even um, street food. So obviously the street food here is very delicious and it's cheap, it's convenient, but it's cooked in crappy seed oils. So, um, and that's the thing about Thai food too, is that they do do that whole nose to tail sort of thing. So there's loads of um, bits of animals that, that you can find in, you know, for, for, you know, for, for sources of energy. So even like insects as well. So using non-traditional, non-Western sort of traditional things as well. So alternate protein sources. And but what about soy? Um, using soy, there's tofu, tofu here, and which you mentioned about the Chinese. There's obviously phytoestrogen issues with um, with eating soy. What you have to remember is that all foods, nearly all foods, are toxic. The safest foods we can eat are meats. If you look at food from the point, of, if you look at um, life from the point of view of a plant it doesn't want to be eaten it makes itself as toxic as it possibly can so um, you have to balance up you know do I get the, the goodness from that food against the potential toxicity and, and nowadays we have more toxicities of GM we have pesticides and so on so everything is a bit of a balance so there's no 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 to something and there's no yes yes to something you know, it's a case of balancing it all up and that you know goes in with your diet as well I mean, I have to say I rarely eat soya because coconut is such a fabulous dairy alternative. So these days I virtually never have soya products. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know there's, there's the, the problem of phytoestrogens and, and all that. But you know, compared to the problems of dairy products, the phytoestrogens are nothing. Dairy products are far more toxic than soya products. Mm, interesting. That is interesting. So... My next question is, my cousin does want to come and see you. Um, where can they come and get, how do they get in contact with you? Well, the, my starting point to treat all conditions is now absolutely standard. I'm not taking on new patients at the moment because I've got so much work on my plate. But what I do do is I don't do what I call road shows. Anybody can join. Anybody in the world can join up with one of my workshops. If you go to my website, there's a link to the workshop. You can buy a ticket. 
And you get me talking all day from 9.30 in the morning to four o'clock in the afternoon uh, with a break for lunch. And I talk about the basic workup for treating absolutely everything, which is the paleoketogenic diet. It's the nutritional supplements. It's the sleep. It's the thyroid stuff. It's the exercise stuff. And at any moment, anybody can ask any question. So the idea is that anybody who's done a workshop with me, they all get sent a management plan, which they fill in as they go along listening to me talking. And they all go away with their own management plan that's peculiar to them, i.e. I give them the rules of the game and the tools of the trade so they can go and do it themselves. Because your best position is always going to be yourself because you are there day to day observing the effects of the different interventions and you're the best motivated person to get well. And the, all the interventions that I recommend are all things that anybody can access. Um, no secrets about it. Um, and what often is quite fun is that the groups that go together, they buddy up um, and, 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 and kind of organize their own little group to, to, to support each other through the darts or whatever. So the, um, 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 those roadshows, uh, those workshops are often very helpful. Great. And to finish off, could you give us three top tips for our listeners? Uh, there's only one top tip, and that is just go and do it. Don't make excuses. Grasp the nettle. It's never too late to start and expect a bumpy ride. Fantastic. Dr. Sarah, it's been wonderful. It's been, yeah, truly fabulous in terms of your, um, the wealth of information. And I'm just sort of left, uh, we'll take some time to process this. And as I sit slowly contemplating my withdrawal from dairy, I think that's my, my, my one takeaway is like, yes, okay, all right, I'm back here again um, contemplating this. I've produced several books. There's lots more information in the books, which are all on the website. There's the infection game. There's the chronic fatigue syndrome. There's diabetes. There's ecological medicine. So if you want, if you'd rather have a book than look at the website, then that's all available too. And tell everyone your website details. It's just Where Dr. Myhill. DrMyhill.co. Um, it comes up immediately. I looked the other day. It's had 21 million hits. So it's oh, right goodness. at the top of the search engine. Excellent. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank My you. pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Bye for now then. Bye-bye. Wow. I think that's all I can say is wow. She was so fascinating and I could have listened to her for hours talking about all the different subjects that she went through and, and her knowledge and I just, I just, I was sort of just looking at the screen and thinking, ah, I could listen to this. Well, I'm sitting here rocking, crying tears of my name is Louise and I'm dairy dependent at the thought of having to give up dairy. But I I mean, to be fair, she has given me a new perspective on the fact that the degree of my emotional attachment to dairy is obviously a true testament of mine my dependence or addiction, addiction to dairy. And Jackie, you well know that one very sad, tortuous month that I spent <laughs> um, in the UK, you know, withdrawing from dairy and you were sort of drying my eyes and rocking me to sleep. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but it, it's something that I'm, I'm definitely going to have to put more, you know, thought into obviously finding here in in Bangkok um, obviously substitutes for for that but you know this is obviously it's easy for me to get coconut 
um, coconut, fresh fresh coconut um, here. So that's that's fairly easy. So um, yeah, but I just remember um, that one month, you know, doing the alternates with milk um, in terms of like macadamia or almond. It just didn't do anything for my morning coffee. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think my biggest thing I would miss would be butter. But she said and we, she did speak about yeah she did say vegan we could have, butter but yeah but she did say butter's okay and I, maybe it's ghee. I think if you take the protein out of that, out of the out of the butter proteins, and, and just use ghee, you should be fine. Hmm. That would be my biggest struggle. I can I can I love cheese, but I can live without it. I love cream, and I could probably live without it. Maybe. Hmm. That'd be interesting. You're shaking your head. You couldn't live without cream? Oh, only because I have it in my, my coffee, my, in my morning coffee. But again, being here with dairy being so expensive, we actually are diluting our cream. So in order to, to extend um, extend the, the volume of cream that we have used, we have we do use less cream because we cut it down with um, with milk. So, yeah, and finding milk, milk substitutes. But I have noticed here that there are lactose substitutes so they do have lactose free products and they have loads of soy products obviously in the shelf they do have goats like goat's milk uh, as well so there are options i'm sure that there are options yeah although i guess goat would still be classified as dairy dairy yeah but that's okay but overall the well-wind powerhouse font of knowledge that is dr sarah has sort of as you said has left us you know absolutely speechless and flabbergasted and um as a subject matter expert um person that we've interviewed i think it's sort of left us with quite a resounding um yeah impact in in terms of her knowledge and the range of experiences that she's had with with um with her clinical practice as well as just being able to be that communicator and communicating it in such a accessible way so i do hope dear listener that you have um, really enjoyed this this particular interview there's loads of stuff on her actual website and so we'll make that links in the show notes there's loads yeah, of resources i just want to um add in because she said it was drmyhill.co, but it's actually drmyhill.co.uk. So, so that we have a link in the show notes anyway. Yeah. And then she have a, has another website called sales at drmyhill.co.uk. And it's at that link where she's listed her books, her resources and her roadshow workshops as well. Workshops, yeah. Where yeah. can we get the show notes for this episode, Jackie? So the show notes will be at www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero four three. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram. 
Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.